0: Well, good morning, and uh, as always, it's a joy to be with you. Um, Bring you greetings from Jefferson Park Baptist Church. I know that we are thankful for your fellowship in the gospel and pray for you. I'm sure many of you pray for us as well, and we greatly appreciate that. Um, And and this morning, we're actually going to be picking up in 1 Corinthians. Uh, It it has been quite a while. I I think there's a few uh, new faces since the last time I was here, but um, some time ago, I did uh, start preaching through this book. Uh, And today we are arriving in chapter 5. And as I prepare to read that, uh, I I want you to consider this question. Is it prideful to judge other people? Is it prideful to judge other people? Uh, Now now certainly it can be. Uh, That's why Jesus tells us to, to judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, I think it's also why Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, who are you to judge another servant? If we presume to stand in the place of God uh, and we self-righteously or hypocritically look down on other people, uh, then yes, uh, it is prideful to judge them. But does judging people always reveal pride? Is it ever right to judge someone? Is there a time when judging is actually consistent with Humility and love. Uh, and, and what I want to show you today uh, from 1 Corinthians 5 is that the clear answer of Scripture is yes. Uh, sometimes judging others is not only permissible, but even required. God commands it. As we'll see in, in chapter 5, verse 12, uh, it says, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In fact, I would say that the main idea of this whole chapter is that the church must judge its own. In fact, as, as we'll see, if, if we don't, uh, if, if we do not judge our own, well, that's actually every bit as much a result of pride as if we are to judge others like self-righteous Pharisees. Uh, it, we, we see here that the Corinthians' failure to judge one another, their, their tolerance is actually arrogance. Because by not judging one another, they're really judging God and replacing his standards with their own. Uh, so please follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter five. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters? Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person. From among you. As we prepare to meditate on these words, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken. We pray that you would help us to understand your word. We pray that you would help us to humbly receive it, to obey it. Oh God, I pray that you would help me to proclaim your word faithfully and in a way that would be edifying and helpful to your people. And Lord, we pray that you would show us how we can apply this faithfully in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as background to this passage, uh, I do want to provide just a little bit of context uh, for the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Um, That's a church that Paul established. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Uh, And Paul is now writing this letter from Ephesus a place that he stayed for over three years and from which he both received visitors from the Corinthian church and also exchanged letters with them. Uh, and 1 Corinthians is written in response both to reports that Paul has received about what's going on in the church as well as a letter that he's received from them. Uh, and, and basically uh, in throughout this letter he's just responding to one issue after another. Uh, everything uh, from head coverings, to lawsuits, to the, the resurrection, to spiritual gifts. Um, and, and roughly speaking, the first half, chapters 1 through 6, uh, are in response to issues raised by the reports he's heard. And then the second half, chapters 7 through 16, are in response to issues raised by the letter that he received from the Corinthians. Uh, and, and chapter 5 begins the, the second major issue that Paul deals with in this book, uh, the first, in chapters 1 through 4, was the issue of disunity, uh, where, where the Corinthians were sort of divided over preferences and preachers, some saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Um, and, and those first four chapters kind of give us a flavor of, of what this church is like. Uh, what, one of the themes you see through there is a lot of pride. Uh, this is a church that is sort of proud of what they know, uh, that, that likes wisdom and eloquence, Uh, that that seems to think that they are very spiritually mature, that they have spiritually arrived. Uh, And and Paul spends those chapters trying to show them how immature they really are and how contrary to the gospel their thinking really is. Uh, And and as we turn to chapter 5, I I think we see this immaturity all the more clearly when we consider the moral state of the church. Uh, We see that there are deep moral issues uh, and as we work through this chapter, uh, we're going to look at four things. So, so first, there's the problem, uh, which is unrepentant sin. Second, there's the solution, which is church discipline. Third, we're going to see the purpose of church discipline. And then fourth, the practice of church discipline. So the problem, the solution, the purpose, and the practice. And again, the main idea of this chapter is that the church must judge its own. So point number one, the problem, and we're going to look at the first two verses here. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Uh, so as as chapter one tells us, Paul had received these visitors, Uh, from Chloe's people, from the Corinthian congregation, and they had given him a report. And and in the report, they mentioned this situation, that there was a man in the church, uh, a member of the church, who has his father's wife. And of course, that's euphemistic for a sexual relationship. Uh, So a church member is committing incest with his stepmother. Uh, And since it says that he has her, present tense, uh, this sounds like an ongoing relationship. Uh, so he's not repentant. And, and by the way Paul brings this up, uh, this sounds like something pretty widely known. You know, Paul's not informing the church, he's not revealing some secret thing. This is, this is something that, that they were already aware of and familiar with. So probably this has been going on pretty openly for a while. And Paul says here that this is not only sexual immorality, but it's a kind that's not even tolerated by pagans. And that is really saying something when you live in Corinth, uh, which is a place that was so sexually promiscuous that they invented a word for it, to Corinthianize. Yet even this would be scandalous in the eyes of the world. And yet, what outrages Paul even more than this man and the sin itself is the response of the church. Notice here that Paul is not addressing the man. He's speaking to the church. And he says in verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? I mean, what outrages Paul is this is something that the pagan society wouldn't tolerate. And yet you, as the church of the holy God, the church of Jesus Christ, the ones called to be holy, you are tolerating it. And instead of being heartbroken by this, Instead of being shocked and humbled, instead of praying to God, what is wrong? I, why is this among us? You're arrogant. You're arguing over preachers. You're, you're proud of how spiritually mature you think you are. You're complacent and smug. And just think everything is okay. I mean, this is sort of like uh, thinking you're the greatest parent in the world because you wrote a book about parenting when you know, all your children are in jail as criminals. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it's, it's, there's this sad irony. And it gets even worse when you remember that just in, in chapter 4, right before this, we learned that the Corinthians were judging Paul. So here they are, not judging, tolerating this sexually immoral man in their midst. And they're judging the apostle of God as if he is not enough. As if he is just too unsophisticated, too weak and unimpressive for them. And so there's this terrible arrogance, an arrogance that comes when they have decided to judge according to the opinions of men instead of the Word of God. They've, they've, they've replaced God's standards with their own. And the shameful result is that their standards are even lower than those of the surrounding world. And brothers and sisters, this is a problem because it totally misrepresents Christ and the gospel. I mean, They're broadcasting to the world that Jesus is okay with sin. And that you can, have, you can hold on to your sin and you can have forgiveness at the same time. Now of course to be clear, the, the church should welcome every kind of sinner. You know, there's, no, there's no sin that's too scandalous for the grace of the gospel to cover. But the grace of the gospel covers no sin without repentance. Jesus died for our sins to deliver us from them, and God saves us so that we might share in his holiness. We can't hold on to our sin and have forgiveness at the same time. This is why if if you just look ahead to chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul is going to go on to say, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, the gospel saves every kind of sinner. But it doesn't leave us that way. To be a Christian is to be a new creation. To be transformed by the Spirit of God. And while we as believers will continue to sin, will continue to fall short, true Christians continue to repent, continue to strive, to grow in Christ's likeness. But the man here in 1 Corinthians 5 is not doing that. By living in this incestuous relationship, he's not fighting sin. He's embraced it. And by continuing to tolerate such sin in the church, the Corinthians are broadcasting a false representation of Christ and the gospel to the world. So this should make us pause and consider, what, what about us? Is there any sin in your church or in your life that you're tolerating? Is there any sin that you should be grieved by and mourning over, but you're okay with? Something that you should be shocked and appalled by, but but you've just grown numb to? And especially, is there Anywhere where your standards as a church or as a Christian are even lower than those of the world? Of course, I'm not talking about things where the, the world may attack us wrongly. You know, they, Sure, they will call us bigots for opposing homosexuality and abortion. But is there anywhere where we're actually sinning? In the sight of God, where, where, where it's, it has to do with sin and righteousness, and yet our standards are even lower than theirs. Where many non-Christians would say, I wouldn't tolerate that, but we do. You know, for example, how are your standards of honesty? How, how faithful are you to your word? How, how do you speak about people when they're not there to hear it? How's, how's the way you treat people, especially people that upset you, uh, that, that, that cross you? How, how do you respond to that? What kind of employee are you? Uh, or what kind of business practices do you use? And I think especially revealing what do we do when doing the right thing might really cost us? You know, as, I, as I thought about this passage to prepare the sermon, I couldn't help but think about the recent report on sexual abuse in the SBC and the ways that that has been tolerated, um, concealed, and enabled. And, And I wonder how many people knew something but didn't speak up for fear of what it might cost them. How many people were more afraid of getting in legal trouble than protecting victims? How many people cared more about their job or their position than honoring God? And, And how different might that have been if instead of being arrogant, they mourned over sin like we should? If instead of tolerating sin, they were shocked and appalled by it and hated it like we should. And they were seeking the holiness that God has called us to. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this passage would show us this morning the danger of tolerating unrepentant sin. And that it would steal in us the fact that the church must judge its own. Uh, We must pursue holiness and not tolerate sin. But of course, one of the questions is, well, how exactly should we do that? How how do we go about that? Well, that brings us to point number two, the solution. So we've seen the problem of unrepentant sin. Well, now the solution, picking up in verse two and going through verse five. Paul continues, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now what Paul is calling for here uh, is called church discipline or excommunication. Uh, That means that this man is to be removed from membership in the church and no longer regarded as a Christian. You'll notice Paul says in verse 2, let him be removed from among you. And then again in verse 5, deliver this man to Satan. And I think that's actually two ways of saying the same thing. The the idea is to remove him from the spiritual security and safety of the church and to release him back into the world, the domain of Satan. And, And that means uninvite him from the Lord's Supper, no longer share Christian fellowship with him, no longer hold him accountable as a Christian and remove him from membership in the church and cease to regard him as a brother in Christ. Uh, And and to do so, the church must issue a spiritual judgment. It's a judgment that in verse 3, you'll see Paul says he himself has already pronounced. But it's ultimately a judgment that the church must render. I think that's why Paul continues in verse 4 to say, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and, and when the power and authority of Jesus is with you, deliver him to Satan." Uh, the, the idea here is that the church is called upon to exercise the keys of the kingdom. The, the keys that Jesus granted in Matthew 16 and 18. Uh, keys that represent the authority to bind and loose. Uh, or to render spiritual judgments concerning who's in and who's out of the kingdom. In other words, who should be public, publicly recognized as a Christian? Uh, as, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, um, if, if, if a fellow believer sins against you, um, and, and you go to him and talk to him and he won't listen to you, well, you could bring one or two others and all of you talk to him. If he still won't listen, well, then eventually you tell it to the whole church, but if, if the whole church is telling him you're in sin, you need to repent, and he still won't listen, Jesus says, then let him be to you as a heathen or a tax collector. In other words, cease to regard him as a Christian brother, but regard him as a non-Christian. And then Jesus says, for whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's a reference to the keys of the kingdom, an exercise of the keys. And then he goes on to say, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. Right? My power and my authority will be present. I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind here when he says when you're assembled, and when in the name of Jesus and the power and the authority of Jesus is with you, you are to conduct this spiritual judgment. Now to be clear, this isn't about the church church bestowing or revoking salvation Uh, scripture makes clear that salvation is through faith in christ and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ Uh, so so people are saved when we preach the gospel and they hear and believe it Uh, and if someone is truly saved we i believe that god will hold them fast to the end but this is about the church recognizing whether or not someone really is a christian Throughout the New Testament, it's very clear that not everyone who says they're a Christian or even thinks they're a Christian necessarily is one. And church discipline is intended to say that while this person claims to be a Christian, their life is showing evidence to the contrary. They're not walking in repentance like a Christian should. They're not showing an evident desire to follow Christ. They're not listening to other Christians who are trying to warn them that the way you're going is not good. And therefore, the church in rendering this judgment is removing its affirmation of this person's profession of faith. The church is formally saying this person should not be looked to as an example of Christianity or a follower of Christ. Now maybe in their heart of hearts they're a believer, in which case we trust God would bring them back. But probably more likely, this is evidence that they've not become a believer and we hope that one day they would. And so the church is trying to Clarify that before the Lord and to the world. So that's what Paul's calling for here. He's saying to excommunicate this man, to remove him from membership. And and brothers and sisters, I think it's important for us to realize that this is the biblical solution for the problem of unrepentant sin in the church. I, I think there's so many reasons why you know, some of us may be uncomfortable with the concept of church discipline. Uh, we, we may not like it, but but the fact is scripture does not give us an alternative to it. And when, when someone is saying, I'm a Christian and they're living a life that's contradictory to that, the church has a responsibility here. And we, we, we can plead with people to repent. We hope it doesn't come to church discipline, but at the end of the day, it's our duty to judge. It's our duty to take action. The church must judge its own. And it's not up to us to decide whether or not we think, you know, this is the best approach or or whether we think, well, this is going to be the most likely to be effective approach. It's up to us at the end of the day to recognize that it's God's church. And this is what he commands. And therefore, it's our responsibility to be faithful to it. And you see, there comes a point when tolerance is actually arrogance because it's refusing to deal with sin in the way God says we should. Right? It's putting our desires and our ideas before Christ and his holiness. So church discipline is necessary. Church discipline is commanded. And church discipline is something that involves all of us. You know, it's not something that, that you can think, well, the pastor should just take care of that. I Paul is very clear here when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? He understands that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the church, to the gathered assembly. And so it's something that we all have a role to play in. And therefore we all need to understand it better. And so with that in mind, let's press on to consider more about the, the purpose of church discipline and the practice of it. So now point number three the purpose of church discipline. And actually, we're going to find three purposes that all connect, um, spanning verses 5 through 8. And the first of these is in verse 5, and it's the good of the offender. So, so Paul says there in verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, so the goal of church discipline is actually spiritual salvation. It may involve some earthly, fleshly destruction, but it's intended for the offender's good. Now, how does that work? Because I think at first blush, delivering someone to Satan doesn't seem like it would be good for them. Uh, And and so, as I wrestled with, you know, how is that good? I, I came up with the following analogy, and I want you to think about the parable of the prodigal son. And think about how the father let the son go in the first place. I mean, he knows his son's on a destructive path. He, he knows that you know, going the way he's going to go is, is, is not going to be good for his son. And yet, it turns out that that destructive path is what it took to lead the son to come to his senses and realize the true blessings of his father's house and to come home. You see, because he wouldn't listen in the first place, he he had to taste the bitter fruit of his own choices. You know, and in a similar way, when someone is refusing to listen to God's word, they're refusing to listen to God's people, all we can do out of a desire to care for them, out of a desire to love them, is actually to let them go. That way, to to deliver them to Satan in hopes that they will taste the bitter fruit of their sin and come to their senses and come home. We, we, We deliver them to Satan knowing, yes, it will be destructive to the flesh. It will bring all sorts of temporal pain and problems. But we hope that in the end, their spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. So so church discipline is, first of all, for the good of the offender. It should be motivated by love, by compassion, not revenge, not not to harm someone, but love. Second, second purpose of church discipline is the purity of the church. So picking up in verse 6, Paul continues, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So so Paul's using the metaphor of dough here. And his point seems to be that the true church, composed of true believers, is like an unleavened lump of dough. But false believers, like this sexually immoral man, um, who, who, who bring the sin of leaven, have come in and are contaminating the lump. And he says even a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I think the idea is that just as leaven will spread throughout the whole lump of dough, sin spreads. Sin contaminates. And while the Corinthians may be boasting and complacent and think, well, we can have fellowship with this man, it's not going to rub off on us, we'll be fine. The reality is that those who tolerate sin will soon find themselves living in it. it. Just think of cigarette smoke. I mean, you either get away from it or you breathe it. And the more you breathe it, the more you just have to learn to tolerate it. And the more comfortable you get with it. There's no way that you can just live around it and be unaffected by it. Sin is like that. We're either hating it and fighting it and trying to get away from it and refusing to tolerate it, or we're slowly breathing it in. We're slowly being desensitized to it. As John Owen said, either you must be killing sin, or it will be killing you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so church discipline is vital for the health and the purity of the church. Then thirdly, uh, the third purpose of church discipline is it's for the glory of God. Verse 7 continues, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul's continuing here with the metaphor of leaven, but he broadens and shifts it slightly. Instead of Christians being the, the pure lump of dough, Christians are now the ones celebrating the true Passover, And Jesus himself is our lamb, and the bread that we eat as we celebrate this new Passover is the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As for the the bread that's leavened with malice and evil, well, Paul's saying that's the bread that should be cast out and removed from among us. In other words, we are to pursue pure worship, pure fellowship, and a pure celebration of the glorious redemption that we have in Christ. And when we gather for worship as a church, when we gather to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're participating in an ongoing celebration of the true Passover festival. We are God's treasured possession above all the peoples on the face of the earth. We are those called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We are those on whom God has placed His name and those called to worship Him in spirit and truth. And the point is, if we don't have church discipline, if we try to celebrate that feast with bread containing malice and evil, we rob God of the glory He deserves. We we, we tarnish the worship that's due to His name. And we fail to represent Him aright. And so ultimately, the greatest reason that we are called to practice church discipline is for the glory of God. It's so that Christ's church that He died for, that that He died to make pure and holy and radiant, may shine like she was intended to. It's so that God may receive all glory. And so that's why we do church discipline. For the good of the offender, for the purity of the church, for the glory of God. But how do we do it? Who is it for, and how should we relate to someone who's been disciplined? So fourthly and finally, we come to the practice of church discipline. and We'll be looking at verses 9 through 13. Paul continues, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. not outside. Apparently, Paul had written about this in an earlier letter, and the Corinthians had misunderstood him. Uh, they seemed to think that he meant you know, don't associate with the immoral people in the world, those non-Christians who are sexually immoral and greedy and swindlers, etc. And Paul says, no, that's not at all what I meant. Because if that's what you tried to do, you, you would have to go out of the world altogether. I mean, immorality is the norm out there. And Jesus didn't call us to come out of the world, to be some sort of separate enclave from the world. He, he called us to shine as lights in the world, to be the salt of the earth. Further, notice that Paul says, it's not our job to judge the world. We're not called to be the moral police for non-Christians. Paul says in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? God judges those outside. You know, it, we have no reason to expect the world to abide by Christian standards. They don't acknowledge our king. Our mission is not to go into the world and be the moral police. Our mission is to go into the world and proclaim the gospel, to tell people about Christ, to call them to repent and believe in him. And as we do that, to live lives that are very different, lives that adorn the gospel, lives that reflect the glory of our King, to show them how good and gracious He is. But when it comes to those inside the church, when it comes to those who bear the name of brother, as Paul says in verse 11, Paul says that we are responsible to judge them. It's not about judging those out there, it's about the church judging its own. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be judgmental people who are you know, constantly uh, looking for things to, to judge in one another and imposing our own consciences on other Christians. I mean, there, there's wonderful freedom in Christ. There, there, there is so much room for us to have different conscientious convictions, and, and we will live our lives differently as we strive to, to, to serve our master, the one we're ultimately accountable to. You know, who am I to judge another servant, as Paul says in Romans 14? But what Paul means here is that we are responsible to judge when someone's life is characterized by clear, serious, unrepentant sin. We should be able to judge if someone is guilty of flagrant sexual immorality or greed, or they are an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. I mean, if you you found out that that Justin has been extorting money from the church, you should not tolerate that. You should confront it. If he won't listen to you, and then other people come, and he won't listen to them, and then the whole church is confronting him, he won't listen to them, well, eventually, you, you need to make a judgment that this is not in step with the gospel. This is not befitting of a Christian. And then as verse 13 says, purge the evil person from among you. And Paul there is quoting Deuteronomy 17, which Justin read earlier as the scripture reading, uh, where where God actually commanded the execution of idolaters. Uh, But he quotes it here because in a New Testament context, it means to remove such a person from membership in the church and then to disassociate from them. And that brings us to the second point of emphasis here. So first we saw that church discipline is for those inside the church, not outside the church. But now secondly, we see that church discipline results in disassociation or to disassociate from someone who's been disciplined by the church. Look again at verse 11. Paul says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with, not to mix with, not to mingle with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, Or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So don't associate with them, don't eat with them, don't don't share table fellowship. Now interestingly, this is one example of something that we know would would have been okay for the Corinthians to do with sort of a non-Christian. In chapter 10, Paul says if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you want to go, that's fine. But here he says, someone who has been excommunicated from the church, don't eat with them. There's a heightened need for disassociation. Now, I don't think that this means that we just completely shun the person. We still love them. We should still be kind to them. We should still certainly be open to talking with them about the gospel and urging them to repent and come back to Christ. We, we hope to see them saved. But I think the reason Paul's saying this is that we need to be all the more cautious and careful about how we relate to them, even more so than with someone who's just a typical non-Christian. And I think the main reason why is because an excommunicated person is deceived in a way that another non-Christian is not. You know, Other non-Christians Recognize whatever faith they may follow, whatever else they may do, they do not believe that they are Christians who are going to be saved through faith in Christ. But this person who is being excommunicated is someone who identifies as a Christian, who believes, I am going to go to heaven because of Jesus in some way, and yet their life is showing a a flagrant contradiction with that. And so I think we need to be all the more careful in how we relate to them for at least three reasons first out of love for that person we need to be very careful not to sort of inadvertently affirm them you know if if, if, if if i'm hanging out with them just sharing casual fellowship and it's so easy for them to start to think yeah we sort of differ on a few things but he's a christian i'm a christian everything's okay I think Paul is saying, no, we, we need to be, by our very behavior, we need to be showing it is not well with your soul. And we are praying for you. So I think I think that's one reason Paul is saying there's this heightened need for disassociation. I think a second thing, as we already talked about, is that it's not really spiritually safe for us to be, you know, sort of closely associating with someone who, who believes so many of the same things, but but there's something very off, something very twisted where where they feel okay just living in unrepentant sin. you know, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I mean, how, how easily that can begin to rub off on us. And then the third reason is I think it is dangerous for our witness. You know, what will the world think when it sees us hanging out? You know, and it, when it sees us associating with it, it doesn't, you know, people in the world don't have the categories of, oh, this person's not really a Christian there. They, they just see who's claiming to be a Christian and then if they're all associated, well, surely they all must represent Christ. And so we are sort of inadvertently giving this person a platform in a way that by separating is making very clear publicly, we do, this person does not represent Christ. I think those are some of the reasons behind why Paul is saying this. And and the point is, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're going to need some wisdom. You know, there's going to be a lot of questions. If there's someone just Discipline from the church, you know, how, how do I relate to them well? You know, what, what, what does that mean depending on you know, if they're a family member? You know, there's, there's a lot of things that we need to prayerfully kind of wrestle through, and it's good to have conversations about. Um, and I also want to say, just as we've, we've kind of worked through this text, um, church discipline is something there are so many questions about. There's so much that I know I haven't had time to address in this sermon Um, I know Justin will probably have some great resources if you want to know more, if you have questions. Um, I actually taught like an eight-week series on church discipline last summer at our church. Uh, That's available online, so if if that would be helpful, you can talk to me about that. would love to point you toward it. Um, But the, the main thing that I hope you take away from 1 Corinthians 5 this morning is that the church must judge its own. You know, true humility doesn't just mean tolerance. It means submitting our thoughts, our preferences, and our convictions, and all that we are to the Word of God. And I pray that this sermon has spurred you on to see sin more like God does, and to strive more vigorously for holiness in your church and your life. And then finally, I want to say a word to anyone who happens to be here who's not a Christian. Uh, because I realized that I've basically spent this, this whole sermon saying that, you know, if you join the church, we will judge you. And you, you may be thinking, well, why should I do that? Like, Why would I want to join a church if it's about judgment? Well, I want you to look again at verse 13. Where Paul says, God judges those outside. And you see, the fact is none of us can avoid judgment. The the, the day is coming when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, even everything you've ever thought will be examined before the flaming fire of His holiness. And God has already warned us in His Word that we all fall short. None of us is good enough. So if you live your life trying to escape judgment now you will be condemned. You will suffer the worst judgment of all then. But the good news of the gospel is that if you will only judge yourself, if we will only confess our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation, then we will be saved. And yes, in the church, we are called to judge one another. But in light of the coming judgment, we come to realize that that accountability is actually good. And it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks or says, because in Christ, we're beloved, we're accepted, we're valued and cherished. And if others will judge me and hold me accountable, they can spur me on so I can be more faithful to this God who has loved me and forgiven me and accepted me. And so, brothers and sisters, let us treasure this good news of the gospel and strive for the pure worship in the church that Christ has saved us for. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are awed that you have loved us. That you have sent Christ to redeem us. God, we thank you for the church. We we thank you that you have called us to represent you. We pray that you would help us to do so faithfully. Help this church, help help every church to to judge its own, to be faithful in this. To do so with love, to do so with wisdom, to do so in a way that would honor you. No, God, I pray that you would help us to hate sin because we love you. Not to tolerate it in our lives, but to, to recognize it and to turn away from it and to pursue holiness and love and purity that you have called us to, that you have enabled us to walk in by the power of your Spirit. Oh God, we do thank you for this time and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.